0: It's so nice to see that you guys are able to figure out how to get here through the gauntlet that is the OC Marathon. Well done. Way to avoid all of those people who make us feel guilty for sitting and eating donuts. That's what the donuts are for, is to affirm you for your ability to, to make it here today. Um, anyway, it, I'm sure that Josh, who's running a half marathon today, will eat the rest of the donuts, whatever you left for him. A couple of things I want to let you know about that are coming up in the next two weeks because they're pretty big. First off, on Thursday at noon, well, Thursday is the National Day of Prayer. And we are praying throughout the week, but on Thursday, we come together with others in our city and around our nation to lift up our nation and to lift up our community and to lift up our neighborhoods. And I want to invite you to join me over at City Hall at noon for the National Day of Prayer to pray around there. Uh, there are some cards for those of you who, who tend to be forgetful like me. On Sundays, grab one of these cards on the way out to, pro- to remind you or stick it in your phone. The other thing I want to let you know about is something that we do every year, and I think it's the best picture of the fact that there's not 50-some-odd churches in Costa Mesa. There's one. Jesus is the head of all of us. And we are all, as we gather in our own spaces, trying to figure out how best to come together to reflect his heart into our community. And so Love Costa Mesa Day is a day specifically set aside to do just that, to come together and say, how can we reflect the heart of our God who loves this community into our community that's hurting? We currently have, I think, about 100 different projects that have been identified. We're anticipating several, a couple of thousand people who on that Saturday are going to begin to spread out all around our community to work on projects. And some of those are low-impact projects, writing letters to teachers and first responders, putting together sack lunches for homeless people. Um, What else did I see last night? Uh, There's one where you're putting together hygiene kits and other things like that and some stuff for schools that you're helping out. Or there's more high impact my family signed up to put together park benches over at the model train station that really loves on the the youth and we're going to be helping rebuild benches others will be pulling weeds or doing repainting projects some will be descending into neighbors homes and helping work in in some of our more needy uh, neighbors homes and so if you are available on saturday May 14th. It's not this Saturday, but the coming Saturday. I would strongly encourage you to go to lovecostamesa.org today and see the different options to sign up for and then sign up for a project, whether it's low-impact or high-impact. And let's, together with the rest of our brothers and sisters in Costa Mesa, love our community. And by the way, if you commute in here from Newport Beach or Fountain Valley or Irvine or Temecula. No, those other cities are starting to get on board, but you are more than welcome to come and serve alongside of us um, as we kind of prepare and other cities are kind of waking up to this idea of coming together. All right, so that's, that's my pitch for you this morning. Um, and now we are going to continue in this journey through this idea of what does it mean to be a good neighbor? And I have to tell you, um, before I dive in, My family and I, over the last several weeks, have been revisiting something that my wife and I started watching years ago, and that is this program called The Chosen. Some of you have seen it, others of you have not, Um, and and let me begin by suggesting that I am well aware of the fact that The Chosen is a creative retelling of much of the gospel stories. I'm well aware of the fact that there has been creative license taken, and I would not in any way suggest that you forego reading your Bible with watching The Chosen. But one of the things that The Chosen has been doing for myself and my family is it fleshes out stories that I read, and oftentimes they, just, they become almost like flannel graphs when I was growing up. Right? They're, they're two-dimensional stories about two-dimensional characters that kind of seem real. And of course, Jesus was real and his disciples were real, but it's easy to forget about that because they just they become so familiar, it almost feels like legend. And what the chosen does is it it helps to flesh that out and, re- and inject some of the gritty messiness of real life back into it. And this is what I'm finding. What is striking me the most. About watching this is not the grand moments, and those are the things that we tend to focus on in church—the grand moments that Jesus had, the, the like spiritual highlight reel of Jesus's ministry: feeding five thousand, sermon on the mount, driving out the demons, and the pigs going—you know—doing their base jumping off of the cliffs. Um, turning over the the moneylender's tables. Boy, would I love an opportunity to do that sometime. That would be fun. Um, You know, the the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the cross, these are all the highlights. Those are the things we tend to focus on. But what watching that has done is reminded me that Jesus was still Jesus even in the midst of the mundane moments, not just the magnificent ones. Jesus was still Jesus. And he was still doing ministry along the way as he was sitting around a campfire with his disciples, just having conversation over dinner. Jesus was still Jesus when he was helping Mary take care of his half brothers and sisters after Joseph had passed away and before his public ministry began. He was still the Son of God then. Jesus was still Jesus when he was carving things out of wood. He was a carpenter by trade. And so he was still the Lord and the Savior then when he was whittling a spoon for somebody else to use or he was making a table and a chair. And here's what really strikes me about this. We don't have a single thing in a museum that Jesus made with his own hands because what he made was more mundane for everyday people to use. And when they were worn out, they were thrown away. And yet they were made by the same hands as the one who spoke the world into existence and held it together with, by the power of his will. That same creative power made a spoon for someone or a toy for a child or a table and, chair, and chairs for a family to eat dinner around. Jesus was the same Jesus when the kids We're making noise like our kids make noise and interrupted them. And all of the adults, all of the the put-together, mature people are going, shut those kids up, get them away. And Jesus is like, no, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And people just like them. And if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you better be more like them too. So let the kids come to me. Same Jesus as the one who did the Sermon on the Mount. Same Jesus as the one who dragged his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. Same Jesus who bled out to save our life and rose again on the third day. It was the same Jesus that would interact with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and with Herod and Pontius Pilate as would interact with everyday commoners that you and I, if we saw him on the streets, would walk right by. Probably the most powerful picture of this is found in Matthew chapter 8. You don't need to turn there. But you'll find this in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Jesus has just finished preaching what is without a doubt the most famous sermon in all of history, the Sermon on the Mount. Just finished preaching it. He and his disciples are walking back down the, the hill, and he comes across a guy kneeling down in the dust of the road. The guy is covered in cloth, wrapped around his arms and his hands. Everything but his face is is covered up because he's a leper. And by all all societal standards, he is human garbage. Any self-respecting rabbi seeing a guy like this would walk right by him. In fact, they would walk as far out of their way as they possibly can. They would treat him like we treated people who got COVID in the early months of it, as somebody that you wanted to stay as far away from because they are unclean. In fact, in this society, a leper like him was forced by law as he walked down the street to yell out in a loud voice, unclean, so that anybody else who was walking down the street could cross to the other side and pass them with at least six feet of uh, of distance between them, a whole lot more hopefully. When Jesus sees this man kneeling in the dust, he paused and he looks at the guy And the guy says, please, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You can heal me. And Jesus is a compassionate person. This is obvious. If you just read any of the Gospels, you'll see Jesus' compassionate heart. But Jesus could have easily extended his hand from at least six feet away and said, be clean. And the guy would have been healed, and he would have been just fine. Jesus had healed lots and lots of other people from much, much greater distances. But in this instance, in this moment, he doesn't. He steps towards the man, extends his hand and places it on his shoulder. According to Jewish law, he was in that moment ceremonially unclean for having touched this leprous man. But Jesus didn't care. Because it wasn't just his leprosy that he was looking to heal. Jesus recognized that with leprosy, that wasn't the only thing. His body wasn't the only thing falling apart. This man's entire self-image had been falling apart his entire perspective of his place in the world his humanity was beginning to disintegrate along with his hands and his feet and his skin he was becoming numb as his heart became used to the fact that nobody wanted him around and he was nothing but a human eyesore and jesus recognized this about the man knew that he needed to be healed in more than just physical ways. He needed to be healed spiritually and emotionally. And so Jesus moves towards the man, extends his hand, places it on him and says, I am willing. In other words, I see you. Be healed. And this man was healed. Not just not just of his physical ailment, but I'm sure that Jesus' actions declared emphatically to this man that you're not the sum total of the lies you've been, exp- you know, swallowing about yourself. You are not what society says you are. You're not your ailment. And thank God for that because, guys, we have people all around us who act or are treated as if they are lepers, as if they are untouchables. There are some of you at home right now who you may not feel like you've got leprosy, but your fear has turned you into just as isolated, just as alone, just as fearful of being around other people. And so for all intents and purposes, you are experiencing the same kind of isolation and dehumanization as he was feeling. And the reminder for us this morning about our divine and yet very human Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is that He loves you, and He loves me, and He loves every single one of us in here, even though He knows our ailment. And He doesn't stand far off and just kind of extend a hand and say, hey, be warm and well-fed, good luck. He moves towards us. It makes me think of a verse that I quoted last week. John chapter 1, verse 14. And this is from the the message, Eugene Peterson's articulation. I just love the the way he articulates this. The word of God took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The divine creative power through which the world was spoken into existence and is continuing to be held together, that creative power took on flesh, entered into our world and moved into the neighborhood so that he could interact with, rub shoulders with the great and the, and the meaningless, or at least the socially meaningless. Those who have great power and those who by society's power have none. And over the course of his lifetime, and even during his three-year ministry, many, many, many people got to rub shoulders with him and be reminded that you are more than the sum total of what society says about you. Our creator and sustainer reminds us through Jesus that he is not some absentee landlord that simply spoke the world into existence and then stands far off and watches it slowly spin out of control, or maybe not so slowly. He is a loving father who, even though he sees the mess that his image bearers have made of his good creation, still chooses to move in to draw near, to be intimately involved in our lives. And then, Jesus, after walking with a handful of men and women for about three years and and revealing, you know, know, exposing them to the heart and the values of his Father, not only his public ministry when he's healing people and moving towards the broken and doing amazing things, But he died on the cross for them, rose from the dead, spent 40 more days reminding them this is what it looks like to live as ambassadors of hope, to be the church, not just go to church like we talked about last week. Right at the very end, right as he's preparing to go back to the Father, he takes a moment to commission those men and women who had been following him. And let's go ahead and pick up the story at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28. If you do not currently have a Bible in your hand, I encourage you to grab one from the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, the one in your seat back is yours. Please take it. We've got extras. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to begin reading in verse 16. The 11 disciples. Remember, there used to be 12, but one of them decided to sell Jesus out. Got his got his silver then after everything went down, he ended up taking his own life because of the grief and the shame and and just the overwhelming shame of what he had done. So the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, although some doubted. And I love the fact that we're reminded that even now, even after all that they've seen, even after having seen Jesus in the flesh, even after having spent over a month with him, there's still some fear and some doubt and some questions of Jesus. Can you really do what you said you were going to do? Could you really use people like us? It, the reason it gives me hope, by the way, is because it creates space for people like you and me, who ourselves, many of us have been following Jesus for a long time, and we still have questions, we still have doubts. We still grapple with the messiness of life in this messy world. And what does it look like to be a reflection of our Father's heart in it? And there's space for people like us, too. Because Jesus' closest disciples experienced the same kind of doubt. So when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority In heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Father has entrusted authority. And now I am going to entrust authority to you. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, I'm not just sending you out, good luck, but I'm going to be with you. In fact, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to enable you to do what I'm commissioning you to do. I really want to focus on that middle verse, on verse 19, because this is what we refer to as the Great Commission. This is where Jesus commissions his people, those who follow him, those who choose to answer the call to follow him. He commissions them and he commissions us to do something. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you. So let me ask you a question. When you hear that great commission, what word or words jump off the page at you? What do you hear? love to make this a little interactive. What are you hearing? Go, teaching, what else? Baptize, disciple, all the, all the nations. Everybody deserves this, not just other Jews. What else? I mean, we've covered most of the big stuff, right? I will tell you that when I hear this, the first word that jumps off the page is, is the second word of that verse. Go right? Therefore, go. I hear that, and that becomes kind of the impetus. That feels like it's the commissioning, is the commission is to go. And the reason that that's important is it begins to color my understanding of what Jesus is commissioning me and others towards. When I hear the word go as a command, I begin to think that the only way, and this is is a belief I have held for most of my life, I begin to believe that the only way I can actually answer That call to make disciples is to go somewhere else, whether that be up to Skid Row, down to Tijuana, across the pond over into Europe or into Africa, go somewhere else so that I can make disciples. And I think that many people, probably not all, but many people hold that same thought, that you have to do that. And thank God some people do Thank God that there are people who truly feel burdened to get out of their context and get into a missional field somewhere else in a developing third world with people who don't speak the same language. And they are willing to take the time to learn how to speak their language, to learn about their culture. I'm I'm so grateful for our missionaries, the marshals, who are willing to enter into indigenous tribes in Indonesia and help translate the Bible into their context. But I need to point out that our English Bible is a translation. And what I mean by that is anytime you pick up a Bible in English, doesn't matter who it's been written by, whether it's been written by an individual or by a, a large group of people, they have taken the Greek and the Aramaic and they've translated it into our English language. And they've m- had to make decisions on how to do that. And so at times, it can mask what the intended meaning really was. Or it could be, you have to do a little bit of work sometimes. And here is one of those places where we need to do a little bit of work. Because although it sounds like, therefore go and make disciples, it sounds like there's two commands. Go and make. There's really only one imperative verb. Only one command in the entire Great Commission. And that is the word make. That is the only command that we are commanded to do, is to make, and specifically to make disciples. And the rest of that verse simply fleshes out what it looks like to make a disciple, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, giving them some way of stepping across and identifying themselves as being in, and secondly, teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. Passing your faith onto them, so that, 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 just as I have done, just as I have given you my yoke of teaching, now I want you to pass that yoke of teaching on to others. So what about go? I mean, what are we supposed to do? Do we just ignore it? No. But the word go is not an imperative command. Rather, it's passive. It would be better rendered, as you go, make disciples. As you go to work make disciples. As you go to school, make disciples. As you go about your everyday life, make disciples. Does that mean that we shouldn't go down to Tijuana, shouldn't go up to Skid Row, shouldn't go to Africa? No, that's not suggesting it at all. It's simply saying, as you go, you can also do this. And this is good news, because this means that we don't have to get a plane ticket, don't have to show proof of vaccination, don't have to get our luggage together, say goodbye to our family, and go halfway around the world to fulfill the Great Commission. And in fact, I would suggest to you that if you want to fulfill the Great Commission, you can do so in the best way right where you are at, right in the place that God has planted you, right in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, in the places that you naturally hang out, that is where you are most equipped and capable of of carrying this out, of making disciples. But I also see that there's a little bit of a problem. At least I see it in myself. And I'm going to explain to you what my problem is to see if maybe it resonates with you. I find that when I go outside of my context particularly when I go on mission. I have been up to Skid Row. I have uh, have gone on mission with the homeless. I lived a couple of weekends with the homeless in Long Beach and kind of entered into their life just to, you know, walk a a couple of steps in another person's shoes. Um, I have been down to Tijuana. I've done some, you know, Costa Rica, things like that. When I go on mission specifically, I go with a set of lenses that I don't normally wear throughout the rest of my life. I go with a lens of, God, where are you? What are you up to? And I'm looking. I'm I'm observing how life is different in this place. I'm looking for evidence of where God is already moving, and then I am excited and willing to join him in that. Whatever that looks like, even if it means totally changing my plans and totally being interruptible, when there is an opportunity to join God in what he's already doing, I'm in, even if it causes me to get my hands dirty, because I'm on mission after all. I've gone with that posture. But then I come home, and it's almost as if I take off those missionally-minded lenses, and I lay them down, and I go back to my regularly scheduled life. I drive down the street, and there are still hurting people all over the place, but I don't see them, because I'm so focused on talk radio, or, or, or listening to, you know, whatever station I happen to be listening to, or I'm focused, I'm, I'm in my head about what, what have I got going on at work. We, you know, I, I drive around, and then I come back to my home, and my garage closes, and I basically live in my little hermetically sealed enclave with my family, and I know there's hurting people all around me. I mean, it, there's, there are hurting people all around us. I just don't know who they are and I don't know what they're going through. And even if I saw what they were going through, even if I saw the need, there's this part of me that feels a little hesitant to get involved because I got so much stuff going on. I'm really busy. And I don't really... I've already got enough messes as it is. I don't need to get my hands dirty with somebody else's mess. Can can you identify with this problem? This idea that we... We are more willing for God to invite us into what he's doing on mission because our posture is both aware and interruptible, whereas here we are unaware and we are wholly uninterruptible because we are all so dang busy. And what we're reminded with the Great Commission is that Our most natural mission field is not halfway around the world. It's right outside our door. For some of us, it starts within our own doors, with our own family, with our children, with our parents, maybe our aging parents. It starts right where you are at. And yes, could God invite you out of your context to go and do something, to go make disciples there? Absolutely. But first... And most naturally, he's calling you to be engaged in the very places that he has already sovereignly planted you. In fact, it is, not, it is not an accident that you live where you live. It's not an accident that you work where you work. It's not an accident that you shop where you shop and that you run into the people that you run into. Yes, you have choices. You make choices every day and it affects who you rub shoulders with. But we also have a sovereign God who takes his kids and he spreads them around like you have spread lights around your house to fill up the darkness. You are called to be light in the darkness. And rather than just saying the only place that the light needs to shine is in the building of a church, he takes the light and he says, I'm going to spread you all over this city And into Newport Beach and down to Fountain Valley and Huntington Beach. I'm going to spread you around into messy, sin-darkened places. You're going to be surrounded by messy, sin-darkened people who have lost hope. And I'm going to let you be a light in the darkness. You might be thinking, man, I want to get the heck out of where I live as quickly as possible. It is a broken place. God's not there. And while he may call you out, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, what if it is that he has called you there specifically because of how desperately that area and your neighbors need Jesus? And they would never step foot into a church building. And so instead, God calls his church to go, and as they go, to make disciples of hurting imperfect people, and he uses hurting, imperfect people to do so. Now you might be thinking, that's a good thought. Uh, We each have kind of a sphere of influence, I hear you saying, and and I see that. I see that there's people around me, but who is my sphere of influence? Who are the people that God has placed around me and is saying, hey, invest in them? And so I'm going to invite the the ushers to pass out a card that we designed, and it wasn't something that we made up on our own. Charlie, where you is, there you are. All right, we got, we got our ushers, they're gonna start passing these cards out. Those of you who have been around for two or three years, you might have seen this before, not yet, not yet. You might have seen these before. These are our sphere of influence cards. This is something that out of the missional pathway that we did three years ago, right before COVID totally took everything off the rails, We had identified the fact that we are the church, this building is not the church, and so how do we begin to be more intentional about the way we move towards hurting broken people? How do we better identify the people that God has placed around us? And thankfully, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, and there are are people who are listening to Jesus who are ahead of us on this, and so we got to learn some best practices Myself and Pastor Jeff and Ian from Trellis, we started listening to what other people were doing, and and out of it, we kind of found a tool that we then made useful for our church community. And I will tell you that it's fun because we didn't just make this for our church community. Today and over the course of this month, there are, are, are several other churches around our city who are being introduced to the same tool. Again, there's only one church, we're not in competition with one another. When we find something that works, we lean into it and we share it with one another. We like to be generous. We've got a generous God. Let's try to follow suit. So this is a card that I hope will help you to identify the people in your sphere of influence. And on the top of that card, now we can show that graphic for those who are at home. Um, on the top of that card is this question, who's in your sphere of influence? And it identifies some of the places that you probably will identify people that God is supernaturally stuck in your proximity. It might be your neighbors, so they live geographically close. It might be friends, maybe f- newer friends, maybe people you've been doing life with your whole life. Might be family members, either that live with you or extended family. If you're grandparents, I would expect your grandchildren or some of these people. It might be your coworkers. It might be your classmates if you're still in school. It might be people you interact with at the supermarket. Or places you go regularly. But these people are probably people that you are interacting with on a regular basis. And we want to begin to prayerfully identify who those people are. So I'm going to take you through the five steps of what this card does to help you begin to be more intentional about investing in your sphere of influence. The first step is to identify who the people are that God has uniquely placed in your sphere of influence. Because let's be honest. You cannot minister to every single one of your neighbors and every one of your classmates or every one of your coworkers and every single person that you rub shoulders with. So step one is to identify the 8 to 15 people that God is kind of placing on your heart. And this requires prayerful discernment. This doesn't just mean who are the 8 to 15 people I interact with the most, but who are the people that God is burdening my heart with. I think about, um, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to throw this in here. I wasn't planning on sharing it. But I think about the absolute best description of discipleship I have ever heard in my life. And it was from a guy who had been doing discipleship and ministry longer than I'd been alive. And at that point, I think it, it was about a 30-year-old just cutting my teeth in ministry. And I asked him, what does discipleship look like? I know we're supposed to go make disciples. What does discipleship look like? And he said, this is what discipleship looks like for me. I'm following Jesus. And from time to time, God taps my shoulder and points at somebody and says, that one. And so I move towards that person. I say, hey, let's walk together. And we begin to do life together. And the things that I'm working through in my life, I share it with them. The things that I'm up to and the things that I get to do, I invite them to join me in it. The things that they are doing. Or the things that they're working through. I invite them to share it. And oftentimes me being vulnerable with them opens them up to being more vulnerable with me. So we follow Jesus together. And then as, most, as life goes, oftentimes our paths will diverge. They might move or they might have something else come up in their life. Or our, our schedules just don't work and they go up. But I keep following Jesus. And then other times, sometimes he'll bring our paths back together and we'll walk together. But regardless of whether or not I have somebody walking next to me, I am always following Jesus because I am first and foremost a disciple. And I'm walking with others. So who are the people in your life that God is tapping on the shoulder and saying, that one? Maybe it's somebody that has surprisingly opened their heart to you and shared their hurt. A, that is an invitation to relationship. Who are the people that the Holy Spirit is burdening your heart towards? Their names go on this. And guys, if, you don't need to be afraid that it has to be perfect the first time because that, sometimes the need to get it right the first time will shut us down from even starting. If you need, grab a couple extra copies of this. Have rough drafts. It changes f- from season to season. But first, step one is to identify the 8 to 15 people that God has placed in your sphere of influence, whether it be neighbors or friends or coworkers or you know family members. Secondly, is to begin interceding on their behalf daily. This means you begin to pray for them. If their name is on this list, you can use this list as your prompt for who to pray for. And you may not know what's going on in their life. You just pray, God does. Just begin praying for them. Here's what I found with prayer. We often think that we pray for people because it's going to change their circumstances. What I have found more often than not is, yes, it has an effect. Our God is a, a great God and He works and stuff. And I've seen some amazing miracles in people's lives that we prayed for. But more often than not, when I pray for another person, it begins to change my heart towards them. It changes the way I view them. You might end up putting somebody's name on this list that you don't like very much and you don't want to spend very much time with. And over the course of praying for them, God will terraform your heart and change your posture and your attitude towards them so that when you have an interaction with them, it's very different than what you might expect. I could share story after story of how prayer has done this for me and for others in my life. Step three is to invest in these people's lives. That means doing life with them, being interruptible, rather than you simply drive down the street past their house over and over and you're caught up in your thoughts. When you drive by their house, you've been praying for them. So as you drive by, maybe you throw up another prayer. God, would you, Holy Spirit, be in their home today. Bless them. And if they happen to be out in the front yard, if he just happened to set up a divine appointment, the best thing about divine appointments is you're never late for them. Because you didn't set your schedule. If you see them out in the front yard, slow down, roll down your window, and say hi. And maybe even allow a conversation to happen for a few moments. Maybe it's being intentional. If they live in your proximity, walking your dog past their house, even if it's out of your way, so that you have the opportunity to go by their home. Look for ways to interact with them be interruptible. If they live far away, maybe it's just a text message or a phone call saying, hey, you're on my heart. How are you? I've been praying for you. How can I be praying for you more specifically? Step four is to invite them. And I am not simply suggesting you invite them to church, though that might be something that you do. But far too often we think that the solution to discipleship is just get them in the walls of this place so that I can tell them how they should live. And that is not what Jesus called us to do. This is not the church. You are the church, and I'm part of it, and I'm here to equip you, and I'm here to help in that endeavor, but you are the church, and you have the ability to invest in people's lives, and so the invitational life looks like inviting them, just as that discipler said, hey, when, I, when God taps me on the shoulder, I move towards him, and I say, hey, let's do life together. Hey, let's walk together. Hey, you want to come over for dinner? Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going fishing. Would you like to come with me? Hey, I'm going, I'm going for a hike in Back Bay. Do you want to come with me? Inviting them into what you're doing. Then everything that you do can become an opportunity to, for discipleship. If you're going to go run a marathon, invite them to train with you. What better? And I know, that's crazy. Only Josh would do that in this place. But whatever you're doing, What are ways that you could invite others into it? The people on that list, the people that God places on your heart are a great group of individuals to invite into it. And then finally, and this is incredibly important. I don't put this at the end because it's the least important. I put it at the end because we need to be reminded of it over and over. The final thing is to increase. And when I say increase, I'm actually talking about you. And I'm talking about me. Commit to growing as a disciple. After all, our actions speak louder than our words. And if we hope to walk with others and invite them to obey everything that that Jesus taught us, we need to be leaning in and we need to be following Jesus. It's right back to that when, when that discipler said, I'm following Jesus and the Holy Spirit taps me on the shoulder and says that one and I invite him to walk with me, we follow Jesus. And even if our paths diverge, I keep following Jesus Before we could ever pour in, we need to be poured into, we need to follow our own Lord and Savior. We need to commit ourselves to living in such a way that when we invite another into our life, whether it be our children, they're watching our lives more than our words. Or our neighbors, and we invite them over. They're watching how we interact with our family. Our our actions speak louder than our words. So saying yes to The Great Commission means also being willing to grow in your own relationship with God and being intentional about that. So this is a tool. It is only a tool. But it's a tool to help you to begin to identify whom God has placed sovereignly in your sphere of influence, who it is that he is inviting you to invest yourself in, and to begin prayerfully lifting them up and looking for opportunities to have relationship with them. That's exactly what Jesus did. As he was going along, he saw fishermen. First, he asked them to use their boat so that he could speak to a group of people who were listening to him. And then he said, hey, catch some fish. Now, throw your net on the other side. And then he said, hey, now let me teach you how to catch people. Come with me. And as he was going along, he saw a Jew sitting in a Roman tax collector's booth hated, despised by everybody else. He said, hey, follow me. Leave the tax collector's booth. Leave the lucrative lifestyle and come with me and let me teach you how to really invest. He did the same with a zealot. The, most, the last person, you know, to have a tax collector and a zealot It'd be like having a, a Democrat and a Republican on the same life group. Oh my goodness you imagine? That's what Jesus did. It wasn't about all the artificial barriers. The Holy Spirit said that one and he obeyed and he calls us to do the same thing as you go. Make disciples, baptizing them in in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you, everything that you are still endeavoring to follow me in. Let your life speak, and if necessary, use words, right? I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward while I pray a prayer of blessing over us. If you bow your heads with me, I just want to pray this prayer as men and women who believe that Jesus died for us, believe that we can live for Him, want to join Him in what He is calling us to and recognizing our absolute dependence upon the Holy Spirit to do it, let me simply pray this blessing. And if you would like, because sometimes our, our, our hearts follow our bodies, if you would like, you could put your hands out like you're almost receiving this blessing as I pray it over us. I'm praying it over myself as well. So Lighthouse Community Church, my brothers and my sisters in Jesus Christ, may we have fresh eyes to see where God is working all around us. And when we see it, when we see the needs, when we see the hurt, when we see hurting people, when we spot a need or an opportunity to minister to someone, may we be both available and interruptible. Even today as we leave this place, we're not leaving church. The church is getting out of the box so we can do what we were called to do. Our mission field begins just beyond the walls of this building. Maybe we'd be willing to drop whatever else we're doing to be used, to, not to be used by God, to join God in what He's up to. We're not tools. We're co-laborers. May we be willing to join God in what we see him already doing, even if it's out of our comfort zone and causes us to get our hands dirty. We are on mission after all. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill us up. Guide our steps. Peel away the scales of busyness and self-interest so that we can see the hurts of others. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Help yourself to our gifts, our talents, our time, our hobbies. May we live an invitational life that your kingdom might expand, that the hope that we have found might be found in others' hearts as well may your light spread as your light bearers get out of this box, out of this building, and go into their sovereignly chosen spheres of influence and invest themselves there. I pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name and for your name's sake. Amen. Let's worship our God together.
1: Jesus, shout Jesus, shout Jesus Jesus from the mountains, Jesus is every mind because I know there is peace within your presence I speak Jesus, uh,
0: there is power in the name of Jesus. And there's not power in my mic apparently. But thankfully, there's still power in the name of Jesus even when every mic is turned off. Even when it's raining outside. Even when it feels like the enemy is winning and the world is winning and everything is going sideways. There is power in the name of Jesus. We've seen it and tasted it. And there are people who desperately need to see that truth. They're not going to trust your words because words are cheap. And so God takes his kids and he says, don't just huddle in the church and hide. Go. And as you're going, be ambassadors of hope. As you're going, share the reasons for why you have hope. As you're going, share your faith as you're going make disciples that is what we are invited to do and just as I would say the vast majority of men and women who woke up this morning to run a marathon did not just decide they were going to do it this morning they have been preparing for months and months they've been practicing they followed detailed instructions of how to prepare their bodies for today we need to practice that's what this is for This is simply to help us practice doing what we've been called to do right where he's planted us. And one day we might be called to go across borders. We might be called to go across the planet and make disciples there too. But for right now, let's begin living out this calling here and now. And so I encourage you to take these. If you're at home and you want to get a copy of this, I'm going to send an email out in the middle of the week. With this document, you can print out in case you're not able to make it here in person. If you would like it, just please email your email to pastor at Lighthouse Community, and I'll make sure that you get it. If you're watching this, and this has been months since I've given this message, but you'd like this, just email pastor at LighthouseCommunity.com, and we'll send it to you. Um, next Sunday is Mother's Day. This is your one-week warning for all y'all that you need to start thinking about your moms, okay? Um, Also, next week is one of the times in the year where we take a portion of our service to dedicate our children to the Lord. And there are some of you who would like to take that moment to bless your children and pray over their lives and do so with a church community around you. But Mother's Day is significant for more than just the fact that it requires a mother to have a child. Um, It's also significant because it's a day of remembering that we are also commissioning these parents to the responsibility of raising their children in the Lord. It's less about our kids and more about the parents on these days. The children will have an opportunity when they come of age to choose whether or not to be baptized. We are choosing to commission you as parents to the task of raising your children but it's also significant because it's a day where we commission ourselves as a church community to joining them in that task. We talk about neighboring, we talk about being witnesses and investing in our community. Well guys there's no better place to start than investing in this community. And next Sunday is a day where we will celebrate and think about all of that. If you would like to dedicate your children Or maybe it's your grandchildren that that you and your kids would like to dedicate. You should probably ask their parents' permission first. But if you would like to participate in that, on the connection cards in the seat backs in front of you, just let us know because we would love to invite you into that opportunity. Or go and talk to Pastor Jeff or myself. And you can drop those connection cards in the white boxes in the back, which is where others will be dropping their tithes and offering. If you're new here, please don't feel the urgency to do that. Simply let us know you were here so we can help you get plugged in. And now, Lighthouse Community Church, my family, united by our our common faith in Jesus Christ, you are the church, not this building. We are the church. Now go be the church. Have a wonderful week.